Welcome to the Andrew Curtis Show. This episode, we are getting into the topic of free speech. But before we do that, a quick thanks to our sponsor, Chemistry. So why do you need to work with Chemistry? Well, have you noticed how important video content has become to the promotion of your business or service? And even when you've got a video, what do you do next? How can you be sure it's not just a good-looking waste of money, right? Well, Chemistry combine a creative and industrious video production process with the latest tools to measure return on investment and deliver that bottom line result for your business. So for more information, go to chemistry.co.nz. That's chemistry, C-A-M-I-S-T-R-Y.co.nz. So free speech, a topic that's become a lot more prominent in the wake of the arrival, the non-event and the departure of Stefan Molyneux and Lauren Southern. Molyneux and Southern have some controversial views, and the debate in this country has been over whether they have the right to say them. My observation is that this debate has two camps that seem very much at cross-purposes. One group is saying that Southern and Molyneux are promoting hate speech that should be condemned, and then we need to draw the line somewhere on what we allow people to say. On the other side, we have those who state that the success of a society like ours is partly based on allowing all views to be shared so that they can be critiqued. As such, support for free speech is neither a repudiation or an endorsement of Southern and Molyneux. My guest this week is Stephen Franks, a lawyer, former politician and spokesperson for the Free Speech Coalition. Now, before we get underway, I want to let you know that Due to some flight delays, Stephen and I had our time together cut in half. So as a result, I wasn't able to cover this as deeply as I would like, and so I'll be making some comments of my own at the end of the interview. I'd also like to let you know that I'm interested in a follow-up episode based on your feedback. So if you have any questions, thoughts, observations, and most of all, challenges to the things that we talk about, please send them through to theandrewcurtisshow at gmail.com. So with that in mind, let's pick things up right after my introduction of Stephen Franks. It's good to be with you, Andrew. So, look, I think to begin with at the very start, can we unpack this idea of, of freedom of speech in New Zealand um, as a topic? Why is it significant and why particularly did the, the coalition come together uh, with these seemingly controversial speakers coming to our shores? Uh, I think people. I think people of my generation and... Uh, probably down to the level of sort of 30. It's, I, I've really learned a lot over the last three or four weeks, but we had taken free speech as a fundamental value for, for granted. We had seen that as something that just wouldn't be questioned, hadn't been questioned. It was such a, a hard-fought achievement in mm. our culture and our history. Uh, it's been challenged frequently in the past and people have died to protect it. And I don't think we had really understood how much the foundations had shifted mm. while we weren't watching, as it were. And it was having a mayor in our major city, nearly half New Zealand's population would is, is seriously affected by what he says and decides. I mean, if the venues in this city are where would draw people from all over New Zealand, having him say that he as a politician could decide that public facilities were not open to people whose speech he found repugnant and to double down on it. I could imagine it being a sort of a, 
uh, a top of the head comment in response to a, a question, but he came back to it three times over five days. Mm. And essentially said, yes, I, I, I have blocked it and I have the power to block it and I block it because it's offensive to um, ethnicities and to religions in among my subjects. You know, I, I, I had the sense that he was putting himself up as a sort of a, a politician priest mm. with a pastoral responsibility to ensure that people weren't offended. And that, that he, he was a former minister of... Justice. Yeah, he's from the left. He offended a huge number of New Zealanders when he was a young man, uh, in scoffing at our military and in the Vietnam War protests. I know because I was on his side and I was doing the same. Right. But we relied intensely on free speech when we went down and and deliberately caused a front. We were persuading ourselves that the offence we were causing was necessary to, to draw people into re-examining their premises and considering and listening for a start and mm. all of the reasons why free speech has been important. So it was a shock to mm. have um, Phil Goff say it and then double down on it and then then to notice that essentially the almost the whole left come out in support of him. And to clarify as well, the, the opposition that, that was presented to that statement wasn't so much a matter of saying, no, we really support the, the views that are being expressed, but the very value of free speech that allows them to be expressed so that then people can have an informed debate about whether or not oh, they're, they're values that we believe in. Absolutely. I, I, I doubt whether, I, I don't know, but the 1,200 or so people who donated money to that campaign, to the mm. Free Speech Coalition, mm. I'd be really surprised if more than a, a, a few percent even knew what these people yeah. have said. I had never seen anything. Well, to be fair, that. I haven't seen many people who even have opposed it who really seem to know what they said either. Yeah, no. It, when when um, we got a bit concerned when we were preparing the case, I, I didn't want to be in a situation where I got confronted with something that was absolutely indefensible. Sure. And we got one of our young lawyers to spend hours going <laughs> through their stuff that he could... And we had another um, a volunteer, a professional researcher, um, again, spent days looking mm. through. And I, I, I don't know whether the law of defamation still protects integrity in speech in New Zealand. It's so expensive for people. But I would say if we had a bounty hunting legal profession the way the US does... Mm that uh, these two speakers could make a fortune out, right. out wow. of just challenging the lies that have been told about them. Yeah. In fact, something that struck me as quite ironic as well was that the only reason you could have people who could come out and say, we don't want these people here, what they say is repugnant, is if they were able to express those views somewhere else on account of free mm. speech so that those views were then open to be heard and, and challenged. Well, that's been the... That's been a frequent theme in the argument of people who say it doesn't matter now if the government decides that uh, we don't want particular uh, speakers here publicly because there's the net, and the net mm. means people can still find out what they're saying. Um, it's the, the problem of, of, of that is that the, the fundamental freedoms are for the freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, peaceful assembly, freedom of association and freedom of thought and religion. Mm. So those were the absolute um, incredible achievements of Enlightenment thinking. And there are a reason why they're all four of them there. You 
can't actually test someone who's spouting in a in a on a video clip. Mm. And you can stick your aura in on Twitter with your brilliant question, but it's a very toxic environment. Sure. And yeah. there's a very powerful re- reason why there's a freedom of association, freedom of assembly. It's because you can challenge people. You can mm. look at them. You can see their demeanour. You can test whether they're shifty and whether they're um, confident. And more than that, when you're with others at a meeting, you get the benefit of their questions, mm. things you would never have thought to ask, mm. questions that might be much more penetrating than the one you've asked. You also get the benefit of seeing other people's reactions. If you're unsure, we all, we're all social people, we're social beings. We draw from the collective, they say the wisdom of crowds, but we draw from the collective appreciation of those who are speaking to us. And speakers know that. Mm. Experienced speakers know that the the crowd sometimes draws them out in a way that they didn't imagine too. You get a much more rich um, understanding. So if these people are ghastly, uh, it's very sad that New Zealanders haven't been able to see that for themselves. And as well, when we talk about freedom of speech, we're also not talking about there being an absolute freedom either because there are still limits within what you can and can't say. Oh, there have been. No one has ever said you're free to um, say anything you like. I have a view that the courts have missed a chance to um, draw the line around um, freedom to persuade. Okay. Because they've what they've said is freedom of expression, and that's the what's in the in mm-hmm. the statute. Yeah. And they've said that it's expression, for example, to offend someone deeply by burning their flag in front of them. Right. Okay. Um, the, lo- um, the woman who Lucy Lawless made a comment about the flag burning just recently. Did she? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the the woman who's been a, a spokesman for Auckland Peace Action, hmm. um, when she was a, a young woman in Wellington, I'm pretty confident. It, it, it's certainly it, it's stuck in my memory that she used to do naked protests. Okay. And part of that was to confront people and make them feel uneasy and to cause offence mm. to look at the causes she was saying. But there's always been an element. People who were protesting against the Catholic Church mm. um, caused enormous offence mm. to pious Catholics. The, mm. the, the state had the virgin in a condom right. in, yeah. the, in, in Te Papa. That caused a, a real hurt to many very pious Catholics. I'm an atheist, but I could understand nuns who dedicated their lives to sure. the church and to to um, you know teaching or whatever they had. They there was a lot of tears and anger over that. Mm. But it's been something we've accepted because free speech is so important, freedom of assembly is so important, peaceful assembly is so important, and suddenly. It looks as if our a large part of our chattering classes mm. have suddenly decided, oh, that's a bit passe. We can do without that. Now that we think our values are in command, let's close it down so they can't be challenged. Mm. Well, there's a, um, I guess there's an illusion of, of virtue, I suppose, about it that, that says that, well, because we know, any air quotes, mm. uh, because we know that we're on the right side of this, um, we can, you know... Yep get the, the law to work for us in this case which of course is the very reason you have free speech laws anyway because of people who would move forward with certainty say no no we know we're right this is the right thing to do yep. and it's the thin edge of the wedge when I was in parliament I along with one of the green MPs Nandor Tankshos mm-hmm. we were in the house when the local government bill was going through Local go- it's the 
dominant, dominant piece of legislation for local government. And I realised that they'd given them power of general competence, which means for hundreds of years local government could only do what it was expressly authorised to do, but they'd suddenly given them power of general competence, that is they could do anything that they thought was in their interest, their community, including the power to make bylaws with no constraints. Hmm. Nanda and I got put into that bill that night a requirement that they couldn't make any bylaw that was contrary to the Bill of Rights, the wow. freedoms of yeah. speech, assembly, religion, thought. The reason I did that, I, lo- I love history, is that there had been a period in New Zealand's history when the Salvation Army had a whole lot of bylaws made against it. Right. In New Zealand, because the established church regarded them as blasphemous and as... Um, as, as a disturber of the police, and the publicans hated them because they were oh, temperance right. things. Yeah, of course. So there was a, a, an unholy alliance between the publicans and and the established churches. Right. And as a consequence, we had local authorities passing laws that they that you couldn't play band music in public. Oh, right. Okay. They wouldn't they wouldn't allow them to have any public halls. Sure. And then, because so the Salvation Army was then preaching in the streets. Yeah, right. And so they decided to ban them from the streets as well. Mm. The same kind of confidence that that the establishment knew what was right and what was wrong. So that law is that is part of our law, and it's the mm. reason why we are going to continue going after Phil Goff. I think that he has breached the law very seriously. Mm. It's amazing, too, the study of history and how important that is, too, because I think that, I mean, you mentioned it as well, being this being something that has been fought for, mm-hmm. um, because I think it's also important that people realize something like free speech, it's not self-evident. If you look around the world, mm-hmm. the idea that free speech is an obvious um, virtue that we mm-hmm. should have, even as restrained as some might try and make mm-hmm. it now, uh, but it's, it's clearly not. I mean, this is not a thing that you just find happened by accident. Oh, it was a very, it's very rare. Mm. It's a very, it's very counterintuitive. Yeah. And the idea of tolerance is hugely counterintuitive. In most societies and most cultures, the idea that you tolerate something that you think is wrong is sin. Mm. I mean, there's, right. it's very, very, um, it's a, it was an enormous achievement. And it, I guess I never expected to see in my lifetime that just how delicate it was, how fragile it is, because it's an achievement which a whole generation looks as if it knows nothing about, cares nothing about. Mm. I mean, I'm, that's a bit sweeping. We, I don't know, but I'm judging from what one sees in universities now mm. of people demanding to be protected from ideas that disturb them. Yeah. Safe spaces, trigger warnings. Well, yeah, actually, thank you, because that was, that was the point I was looking to um, actually touch on as well, was this idea of, of, of trigger warnings now. In fact, um, I don't know if you're aware, there's some uh, research that's finally starting to come out around this um, that basically showing that re- really trigger warnings, all they do is amplify the anxiety of people who believe that words will hurt you. Oh really? Yeah. So it, it triggers it triggers the fear. It triggers that, the triggers. Yeah. The fear that they said they didn't want. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they've always seemed like a device to just shut down people anyway. That. Yeah. I, I mean, I, if I'm being charitable, and sometimes I feel like it, I think that when when I hear some of these things as well, I mean, there's a lot of what I would call virtue signalling. Mm. Uh, it's not a term that's unique to me. I've heard it before, and particularly with you know people like Phil Goff who want to appear to have been concerned for the well-being of others mm. to such an extent that. You know, whatever. 
Um, but as I say, and that's why I think that the study of history is so important, is they really don't understand what they're pulling down in the process. That if you say, mm. I want to protect people from harm, well, that's great. Mm. I think we all agree that you shouldn't harm people. Uh, however, when you see what harm you open people up to mm. in future when free speech is not on the table anymore, the damage you risk doing is far higher. Mm. Um, but look, at, uh, in order to keep things moving along, I'd actually love to unpack this idea of hate speech a little bit more as well, because there is uh, even a school of thought that would say, well, hate speech doesn't really exist anyway. Um, that's more just a label that's given to the free speech that now we decide is particularly offensive or that we don't want to have to deal with. What's your opinion on, on hate speech? You've just summarized it. Oh, there you it, go. I, the, the, the interesting thing is, is actually trying to see if there's any intellectual integrity mm. in looking through. Um, it's a, a slogan. Mm. It's, a, it's a slogan that describes what we don't like. Mm. When you, and uh, there's nothing that I've seen in any of the recent scholarship on it that goes touches any of the uh, the concern that was um, explored 100 and 200 years ago. And the, the the boundaries to free speech are that you can't incite violence. Mm. There's a very um, interesting argument by Popper, which Karl uh, Popper, who was out here during the war, a philosopher, a very important philosopher, um, although it's odd for the left to be um, calling on his assistance because he was not of the left. Mm. Um, but Karl Popper had seen the emergence of Hitler mm. and he was concerned that there was a category of advocacy that would be the seeds of the end of free speech. And so his qualification on free speech was that you um, were entitled to suppress speech that was itself urging the end of free speech. Right, okay. So that's a, and I think that no one has really explored, I think no one is confident about just where the boundaries to that argument should lie. Sure. And in a way, it, it, I think with the distance that we've now got on the period that was upsetting him, I mean, he was a refugee from, from Austria, the brown shirts were very like the so-called peace movement here. Mm. Um, they claimed the right to protest, the right to demonstrate, the judges have upheld the right to demonstrate. But when the when it's actually not intended to persuade, it's intended to compel or coerce. Mm. It's, for example, this guy who suddenly turned, off, turned the tap off on his premises. Sure. It looks as if he was threatened in a way that was very material. Mm. That's not persuasion. No. That's coercion. Yeah. And so that, that, or another one would be the Islamic Federation calling on the government to stop them from being offended. Well, they, right. are, they are, I mean, I, I'm quite happy to say I think it is a religion that is seriously threatening um, free speech all over the world. Mm. The, the, the risks to people make them very nervous about speaking against Islam. And it's the counter-argument, too, that, you know, if you were to try and, you know, walk down the main streets of Riyadh and, and uh, try and have the discourse yeah. that we're looking to have here, uh, again, you'd find that the free speech that we have here is yeah. not self-evident and, in fact, well, there isn't. up for grabs. There isn't yeah. such a thing as Islamic free speech. It's, right. it's a society of the kind that we talked about where mm. the dominant threads in Islam say that tolerance of infidel um, and even tolerance of someone who loses their faith 
yeah. tolerance of conversion. They're all things to be dealt with by death. Mm. So what's the, you know, to those who, again, hear these say specific arguments and then would say, well, that's creating, um, I'm trying to kind of retread the arguments in my mind around, uh, you know, that's, that makes these people feel unwelcome or persecuted or, or something like that within New Zealand. Um, again, what's the, what's the response to that? Opposition. Well, it's um, free speech has has nearly always made someone feel unwelcome or persecuted. Mm. I mean, the, the 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 Catholic Church managed to suppress for hundreds of years the anxiety about what what its priests did with little boys, mm. and there was a long period when um, talking against the Catholic Church was deeply offensive to pious people who'd put a lot into the church. Mm. But until we were free, until a few, free not only in, in theory, but actually in practice to pursue, um, those wrongs carried on. And I think there is is no point in an argument that says you can have free speech up to the point where you upset someone. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, I've heard it said too, you know, you have you don't have a right not to be offended. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So look, when I, you know, as I said, this occasion with, with Lauren Southern and Stephen Molyneux was um, particularly eye-opening for me, but it, it did strike me that with the amount of support that the coalition was able to bring together so so quickly, um, suggested to me that perhaps there's been enough other elements up until now that have raised concern that people were ready to act and show their support quite quickly. W- were there other... Um, you know, triggers. Uh, triggers. I don't know. That's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, there may have been. It may be that I've not actually seen the list of donors to get a feel if there's a common element there. My own concern has been growing because I've been reading about the really strong attacks on free speech in North American universities, mm, and yeah. I've and and UK as well. I I'm not. I know a number of academics who are themselves too scared to speak out right. because their careers will suffer. Mm. And there, so there's a climate, I think, in New Zealand universities of cowardice. Mm. But I don't think we've had deplatforming to the extent that you've seen North America. So, mm. Could you may, explain deplatforming just for those who haven't heard that oh, when When student bodies, usually minority student bodies, calls, invite a, a speaker to come to a university, which is a typical part of a university, Life is to be exposed to people challenging speakers. Mm. Uh, Majority student bodies in a number of... Well, the establishment student student bodies in a number of universities have demanded that the university authorities de-platform or ensure that that speech they don't want doesn't get a platform, which is Mm. exactly what Phil Goff did. Sure. Say that we'll use our power to control these premises to mm. make sure that if they're going to say these things, they're not going to say them around us or to our students. They're not going to have the um, the legitimacy, if you like, mm. um, of being able to speak at, at some uh, if, at some venue that we can control. And that has become um, very contentious. A number of um, well-known and not-so-well-known universities have had very violent protests where the police have um, been unable to control the opposition and as a result there's um, students, lecturers, professors who have unpopular views are uh, essentially excluded from Mm. 
the intellectual life now of institutions that we thought were set up to explore ideas objectively and without boundaries. Well, I mean, it's been a phenomenon that I, I've wondered whether or not within New Zealand, and this is purely my observation on it, whether or not we've just kind of gone quietly with this thing for quite a while and it's been something like this that's more that kind of mm. canary in the coal mine kind of moment. Um, because I've always been aware of a general, uh, you know, we've always had a bit of a socialist slant in New Zealand for at least the last, you know, mm. 50 years or so anyway, um, and prided ourselves on these words like things like multiculturalism, which was one of the uh, mm. topics that the speakers were likely to speak on. Um, I don't feel like there's really been a moment that's really challenged that as strongly where people have had to come out and say, well, first of all, to, to really voice an mm. opinion that says maybe this is a bad thing. Uh, and as you mentioned, that um, it's it's almost the unspoken fear that I'm most curious and mm. potentially concerned about that to come out and say, I don't agree with this, or mm. just to have a, a non, I don't know, PC position on anything does seem to be tantamount to career suicide now. I think it definitely is in academia. In yeah. that you're, you're, um, I've got <clears throat> friends who, who uh, have spent their whole careers... Um, just they've loved the life of the mind who are <clears throat> terribly relieved to be leaving Wow! because they say the university is not I I, I did a, um, a sabbatical from my law firm a few years ago 20, uh -huh. 20, 20 years ago actually yep <clears throat> and um, I came back from having spent um, a, a semester or a half semester at Chicago yeah and it was just so exciting and um, the the interplay between the faculty and the profession and and the judiciary mm. and the government was was always really interesting argument going on and I heard judges give ex expressing views that no New Zealand judge would ever express mm. you know, asking questions that would never be he asked here right and I thought this is this I don't want to go back to my law firm I, 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 I want to <laughs> go to university it. yeah and I. I came back, I should say that our sabbatical system often resulted in unsettling people. Right, sure. You, you had to get back and then rub off all those fresh antennae that had <laughs> grown. Right. But um, So I went to see the uh, the dean of the law school, mm. and actually he just, just retired dean, and said, you know, I didn't uh, have a stellar degree, but I'd just love to be able to follow up some of the stuff and be an academic. He looked at me, rubbed his hands through his hair, and he said, I won't use the word, but are you mad? <laughs> I think I can guess what the word was. Yeah. Yep. He said, I've been to your firm and had uh, morning tea. Yeah. I've been to lunches with you guys. He said, I hear more free intellectual inquiry and challenging thought there in a single session than I would get in a whole term in the common room of this university. Wow. He was, he's, he's, it had been closed down. It had become ideological. Mm, mm. And I think, too, the, um, in terms of the left-right balance of those in academia now, um, there are those that have observed we've had quite the... I mean, not that it was ever 50-50, but mm. the fact that it's now kind of 90-10 mm. uh, in terms of that left-right balance within mm. universities as well. Yeah. I mean, you can get fired for a tweet now. Has that happened in yeah. New Zealand yet? Have we had people who've, who've actually had their jobs challenged for, for saying the wrong thing on a social media platform? I don't know. I, I, I haven't thought... I, I, it, there might be someone. I can't think. 
there's certainly people who would never be hired because of tweets. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Um, there's there's being a small society. I mean, I, I'm not entirely. I don't expect us to be red and tooth and claw in our debate. Sure. We live in a small place and we have to rub along with each other and we're going to see each other time mm. and time again. Mm. And you can't just up sticks and move a thousand kilometres away and start right. again. Right. So I think we will be more civil in our discourse. Mm. And we will probably have a more covert level of, of uh, censorship, if you like. Mm. But no, it's, pretty, it's pretty naked now in some things. They're just whole topics you're not allowed to touch. When I was an MP... Uh, most of the criminal justice stuff that I was talking about was picked up from the British Labour Party's website mm -hmm. because they'd been through this questioning, you know, tough on crime, mm. tough on the causes of crime. Our theory was that when we ended, ended social deprivation, in other words, when everyone had a roof over their head and they could all eat, mm. crime would drop away and instead it's got worse. Right. So they were, there's a a Labour MP called Frank Field who was really thinking a lot about this and, and Tony Blair did too a lot. Anyway, here I don't think I ever had a media interview on the substance of any of this, the policy that we came out with, ever. Wow. It was always treating it as um, the tournament. Act has announced this, here's how this will play out. They're the red and going for the redneck vote. They're after Winston Peters' vote. Right. It was always a set of assumptions that were ad hominem about me and where mm. they thought I was coming from. It was always called far right. Mm. And I started on the left. I I went to Mao Zedong's China and tried to live in a commune. Oh no so, way! <laughs> <laughs> the things so, you learn about somebody. Exactly, All right. Yeah. Okay. So yep. I, I just I was pretty. I've been aware for at least 20 years you know, mm. since going into politics that the New Zealand media do not engage on ideas. No. All they want to do is brand you. Where, where does he come from? Then we can dismiss it. What's well, that identity politi politic thing yeah. again, though, isn't it? Yeah. That we don't, we don't deal with anybody as an individual on the basis of the quality of an idea. It's... We don't even deal with the... It, they're not even interested in the idea. No. They're only interested in whether this person is a good person or a bad person in our... Punch and Judy show in our in our pantheon of devils and mm. and saints. How do you feel in terms of the the format of New Zealand media? Because to be honest, it was a thing that got me interested in doing podcasting in the first place. That in terms of long form content and the ability to really talk about these things. I mean, I have joked with people before that it would be fun to do something akin to like a Daily Show kind of thing in New Zealand. But we, on the one hand, I don't feel like we've got enough to actually fill a show. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the absence of that. And as much as the U.S. media is a bit of a circus, uh, you don't really have this um, the the platform for that kind of debate. I mean, you know, we've talked about this at the moment. Mm. The the Sunday program is mm. playing as we speak, mm. uh, and that's you know about an hour long on a Sunday evening. Mm. It's very easy to miss that kind of thing. How yeah. do you feel New Zealand media plays into that? Um, I, I'm sort of torn. We've had. Four generations of civil peace. Right. You know, we've been the, some of the luckiest people in the world. People mm. say we're a young country. We're not. We're the fourth oldest democracy in the world. Really? Yeah. And we've had stability. We've come, I think we have come to just assume that life is going to be good to us and mm. people are nice. 
and we may be a frivolous people. Mm. We may, mm. and I, I'm very struck by if you go back to the papers of a hundred years ago, there would be very long reports of debates, and the whole debate would be reported. Right. You're lucky if you get two sentences now. Mm. Mm. And so it may be that it's very hard for a me- for serious media to be supported in a country that's not serious. Yeah, yeah. When life has been so good, we haven't had to worry about politics. We haven't had to worry about about villains. Mm, mm. And the villains that the left is creating are pantomime villains. They 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 desperately want um, these two speakers to be worthy of being enemies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. I, I think something that's fascinated me, again, looking into history as well, I mean, even if you look at the degree to which extreme poverty around the world has reduced in the last mm. even 20 or 30 years, um, I feel like the, the things we're fighting against now are the privilege of an affluent people. Yep. Uh, you know, we're able to get upset about what a person says mm. now because we're not genuinely concerned if we're going to starve to death uh, mm. or die of some form of disease, which it might sound trite to people listening, but I mean, mm. up until... I mean, even the 1950s was still a very high chance that you could catch some form of disease mm. that would wipe you out. And so now we're like going, oh, gosh. Well, you could still actually be pretty hungry at night. Yeah, yeah. I mean, our, the, the mark of our poor people is how fat they are. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. So you've mentioned um, the, the next steps for you. I'm just aware of the, of the time as well mm. that we, we have together now. So I, I do have to go. We do need to yes. go now? Yep. All right. Well, I will wrap this up on another time. Stephen Franks. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. And so that was that. I do want to thank Stephen again for his time. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there were some delays with flights and things, which meant that we had to cut things a little bit short. Unfortunately, it also meant that there were some things I wanted to discuss with him that I just didn't have time for. One of those things was on his opinion of another free speech coalition, namely that in the United States. Now, this has a somewhat more tawdry past having been founded with strong ties to the pornography industry. So this was interesting to me in light of research showing what harm is being done to our children viewing pornographic material, and therefore what kind of limitations may or may not be considered. Oh well, missed opportunity. Stephen and I also talked a little in the car on the way to TVNZ, which is where he was heading after my time with him, about his ideas around speech that seeks to persuade rather than just to offend or outrage, as being a means of finding a balance that we can live with without uh, compromising free speech too heavily. One point I want to make on my own now is to address the allegations of fascism uh, regarding Southern and Molyneux and why I think it's dangerous to conflate that with free speech. So from my observations of Molyneux and Southern, there is a strong nationalistic streak running through the ideas that they promote. However, there is something lacking that's also critically important to address, One of the central tenets of fascism, or Nazism, is totalitarianism. This is where the state has total control, and it's an idea that Southern and Molyneux are very much opposed to. Now, you would have heard Stephen Franks and I discuss the importance of understanding history, so I think it's fitting at this point to go into a little more detail historically. One of the most compelling reasons for fighting against controls over free speech has nothing to do with the content of speech at all. It's to do with giving power to the state. If we decide to limit freedom of speech, however good our intentions, it means that the state now has the power to enforce what we say or do not say. Now, the reason this makes those of us who study history rather nervous 
is that giving the government more power, even for the right reasons, tends to end poorly for the people. Both in Nazi Germany or in socialist communist Russia, people supported political parties or revolutions in the belief that this was for the best. Yet in both cases, once that power was handed over, it proved impossible to get it back. So as such, I would prefer to frame the debate as totalitarianism versus freedom. In my opinion, it can also answer why free speech proponents can seem callous to the offence or hurt caused by free speech. The reason is that the alternative can be, and has proven to be historically, much, much worse. But is this being overly dramatic? Well, maybe. Looking at history means you also cannot ignore the remarkable progress that's been made in the nation of Singapore, which has been under the rule of a benevolent dictator for upwards of 50 years. When you have the right people in charge, it can work. How's that for a mind job? The central lesson I take is that when you have an authoritarian state, the risks and rewards are amplified, and history has shown us that the result tends more towards the negative than the positive. And now for a case study. What happens when we choose to ignore free speech or dismiss ideas that we don't agree with and avoid genuine discussion? Well, for this, I propose a case study in America and the rise of Donald Trump. Personally, I credit the last presidential election as the catalyst for my rejection of the absurdity of left-right politics. In my opinion, both were horrible candidates though I will concede that at least one of those candidates was qualified to lead a country. But they weren't the winner. The Trump presidency shocked the world. It's the ultimate hold-my-beer moment to Britain's Brexit decision just a, uh, a little while sooner. It was also impossible. It could never happen. Even the most generous polling gave Trump about a 25% chance of winning. So, how did it happen? Well, I would suggest that there was a deep misunderstanding about how certain parts of America were feeling as a result of the 2008 financial crisis. Bear with me here. The stimulus packages after that economic catastrophe had mostly been absorbed by the cities, meaning that lower and middle class Americans living in other parts of the country felt ravaged and forgotten. They were angry and they were looking for someone to blame. Yet they were described as a basket of deplorables. They were labelled as racists with and low-IQ hillbillies, and they were dismissed. But they showed their voting power, and America was shaken, revealing a divide that's only widened since then. Now, this isn't a defence of Trump. I think you would struggle to find a more unqualified, less-equipped world leader, and even those who would praise economic progress since he took office wouldn't want to leave their daughter alone with him for more than five minutes. What this shows me is that when you ignore the voices of people with discontent, change can take you by surprise and you may not be happy with the result. How different would things have been if, instead of being labelled and dismissed, their pain was acknowledged, even if their anger or search for solutions was misdirected? Lastly, regarding what the Molyneux and Southern incidents mean for New Zealand, I'm not in total despair. What we saw, up to the point of the venue being cancelled, was the ideal functioning of free speech, in my opinion. The protests are as essential as the speaking event itself for the overall health of a free society. At the end of the day, the controversial pair were not silenced by the government or the press, however misrepresented they may have been. 
I'm concerned to know the full reasoning behind the venue cancelling their booking, though, as neither side can afford to have the threat of violence as a weapon in their arsenal. And so, those are my closing thoughts. Can I ask you to do two things for me? The first is to send me your feedback. As I mentioned earlier, I'm open to a follow-up episode based on the comments I receive, so send them through to the Andrew Curtis Show at gmail.com. The second thing is that if you've enjoyed this episode, can I ask you to pass the link on to someone else so that we can all continue this discussion? I think we'll be the stronger for it. Thanks for listening. Yeah.